Good morning. We'll be in John 14, starting in verse 15. In his book called Adopted for Life, Russell Moore retells the story of uh, when he and his wife adopted two boys from Russia, and he recounts it like this. He says, when Maria and I first walked into the orphanage, we were led to the boys the Russian courts had picked out for us to adopt, and we almost vomited in reaction to the stench and squalor of the place. The boys were in cribs, in the dark, lying in their own waste. Of all the disturbing aspects of the orphanage in which we found our boys, one stands out above all the others in its horror. It was quiet. The place was filled with an eerie silence, quieter than the Library of Congress, despite the fact that there were cribs full of babies in every room. If you listened intently enough, you could hear the sound of gentle rocking as babies rocked themselves back and forth in their beds. They didn't cry because no one responded to their cries, so they stopped. That is dehumanizing in its horror. The first moment I knew the boys received us in some strange preliminary way was the moment we walked out of the room for the, first, for, for the last time on that first trip, when little Maxime, now Benjamin, fell back in his crib and cried. The first time I ever heard him do it. It was because, for whatever reason, he seemed to think that he would be heard. And he no longer liked the prospect of being alone in the dark. Leaving them at the end of each day was painful, but leaving them that final day before going home to wait for the paperwork to go through was the hardest thing either of us had ever done. Walking out of the room to prepare for the plane ride home, Maria and I could hear Maxime calling out for us and falling down in his crib, convulsing in tears. Maria shook with tears of her own. I turned around to walk back into the room just for a minute, and I placed my hand on both of their heads and said, knowing they couldn't understand a word of English, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I don't think I consciously intended to cite Jesus' words to his disciples in John 14, 18. It just seemed like the only thing worth saying at the time. When Maria and I at long last received the call that the legal process was over and we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons, we found that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits that our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They had never seen the sun. They had never felt the wind. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming or felt like they were being carried along a road at 100 miles an hour. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergei, now Timothy, that place is a pit. If only you knew what's waiting for you, a home with a mommy and a daddy who love you and grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and McDonald's Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalid, but they had no other reference point. It was home. We knew that the boys had acclimated to our home, that they trusted us, and they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. They knew there would be another meal coming. And they wouldn't have to fight for the scraps. And this was the new 
normal. They're now thoroughly Americanized, perhaps too much so, able to recognize the sound of a microwave ding from 40 yards away. I still remember, though, those little hands reaching out for the orphanage, and I see myself there. And I wonder, can you see yourself there at all? You think about the last week or two, the last few months. Can you see in your own maybe attitudes or actions any situations you've surrounded to as though you were functionally alone in the world? No one to care for you. No one to provide for you. No one to hold you. No one to help you. Maybe you're like those orphans in the sense that you just, there's kind of a toughness that's come over you. You just don't cry anymore because what good would it do? No one responds anyway. Or maybe you find yourself returning to the pit of your own sin. It's just, it's empty, it's squalid, but it's comforting in some way because it's all you've known. Or maybe you feel like you have to fight for scraps in life because you just don't know what the future holds and if there will be enough. I'm not convinced there will be provision. Orphanhood means being bereft of protection, provision, parents who provide that. And I think sometimes we all have this tendency to live like functional orphans in our attitudes and our actions. If you've ever thought, if you've ever wondered whether God has abandoned you, if you've ever felt unbelieving attitudes of anxiety, fear, despair, then John 14, 15 through 31 is for you. These are the words of Jesus and they are authoritative and true. I invite you to follow along with me. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
You heard me say, I'm going away and will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have kept your promise. You have not left us. You have, in fact, sent your Spirit, who did indeed bring to remembrance for your disciples all the words you spoke. And those words have been recorded for us, faithful and true words that speak to our anxieties and our fears, our worries, our pains, our sense of loneliness and abandonment in this world. You speak to us such comforting words. Words. So I pray that this morning as we hear these words, as we believe them, as we receive them from you, from your very mouth, may your words function in us to produce the peace that you promise to all who love you. In your name, amen. So in John 14, 15 through 31, Jesus is addressing this anxiety and the fear and the sense of abandonment that his disciples experienced when he told them this news that he was about to depart. We saw that at the end of chapter 13, verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And that news that Jesus said he's leaving, he's departing, that caused panic and fear and trouble in their hearts. They were disoriented and confused about what Jesus had said and why he would leave them. And then John highlights for us three different questions from three different disciples. So this is a fourth of the crew. Three of these disciples, Simon Peter asks him in chapter 13, 36, Lord, where are you going? And then Thomas asks him in 14, verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And then Judas, not Iscariot, asks him in 14.22, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? You sense their bewilderment and their confusion about Jesus leaving. And so in response to that, Jesus, who cares deeply for his people, speaks. He speaks these words. This is the result of Jesus speaking to them to clarify and explain in order to alleviate their fears and ultimately to impart to them his very own peace. He says in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. That's what Jesus is aiming at in this text. And to have the peace of Jesus is to have a heart that's not troubled in this world a heart that's not afraid in this world. Though the circumstances and situations around us certainly give us cause for fear, to have the peace of Jesus is to have a heart that's not troubled or afraid. That's the grace that Jesus offers you through this powerful word this morning, his very own peace. So the question is, how do you get that? I mean, anxiety, fear, and worry, we know what that feels like. 
We need something more than just telling ourselves we have peace. We actually want to feel peace, to experience peace. How do you experience the peace that Jesus gives? Well, look at verse 27. Jesus says, not as the world gives do I give to you. So how does the world give peace? In what sense does the world give peace? Because that's the way Jesus does not do it. And I think from the Old Testament, we can see at least two ways the world gives peace. The world gives false assurances, false promises that sound good, make us feel good in the moment, but they just don't work in the long run. And secondly, the world gives peace for a price. Look at Jeremiah 23, 17. The prophet Jeremiah says, they say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord. These are people living in active rebellion against God who have every reason to fear because they are living in sin. False prophets say to those people, it shall be well with you. It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, don't worry, no disaster will come upon you. That's a false assurance. Anxiety is worry about the future, right? It's a future-oriented thing. We look at the future. We don't know what's coming. We're uncertain. We feel out of control. We wish we were in control. Our mind races with what-if questions, and we just can't ever answer them because nobody knows the future. And the thing we want most desperately is to hear someone say, it's all going to be okay. And the world is full of people who will tell you that. It's all going to be okay. But if you stop and think about it for any length of time, you realize, how do they know? It just doesn't work. It doesn't last because how do they know that something awful isn't going to happen? On top of that, those who are living in rebellion against God actually have reason to be alarmed. They don't have any reason for peace. And so the world offers this pseudo-peace by trying to block out reality, blocking out awareness of God, blocking out the conscience, blocking out any thought of the future or what happens after death. Just block it all out and don't think about it. And that's how you get peace. Find enough people who just pat you on the back and tell you it's fine while you keep walking in your own sin. The world also gives peace for a price. Micah 3, 5 Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry, peace, when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Plenty of people are happy to give you a promise of peace if you pay them for it. And Jesus says, I'm giving you peace not like that. Not a false assurance, not an empty promise, it's not speculation about the future. This is coming from a place of authority. It is a guarantee from God Himself, and it's not for purchase. It's purchased by Him for you. He gives it freely to all who trust in Him, and that is a reason to rejoice and be glad. A freely given assurance of peace from one who actually has the authority to give. So how then does Jesus give peace? In this text, it's clear Jesus gives peace to those who feel alone and abandoned and unsure and unsafe. Jesus gives peace by giving himself. That's what he's actually promising here. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. The very peace that I have within me, I'm, I'm giving you. And he says a couple chapters later in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Peace is located in a particular place and there's no peace outside of that place. The place where peace is located is 
in Jesus, in relationship to Jesus, which means what you and I need more than a feeling of peace is a relationship with Jesus. And I think we have this tendency to kind of look to God like a vending machine just dispenses the feeling we most need. So we just kind of cry out to him. We do pray. We pray, God, give me your peace. But really, we're just kind of looking at him like, can you just pour out some of that feeling into my heart? And we're not looking to him necessarily to, to know him, to abide in him, to love him, to be in relationship with him. And Jesus is clear that peace, his very own peace that he gives, he gives by uniting you to himself. So what he gives you ultimately is a relationship. So our goal has to be more than just feeling relief from unpleasant feelings. It has to be more than just acquiring peace instead of anxiety or fear. The goal is to know Jesus, to know him. And that's what Jesus offers. He gives you access to God himself. This is the language that's just overflowing in this text. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you. You will see me, he says in verse 19. I will manifest myself to you, he says in verse 21. We, that is me and my Father, we will come and make our home with you, verse 23. Verse 16, the Father will give you a helper, the very spirit of truth. He sums all that up in verse 20 when he says, in that day you will know that I'm in my Father and you're in me and I'm in you. That's what Jesus is offering in this text. More than a feeling of peace, he's offering you intimate communion with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and in him, all of the peace and joy that he has there. He's never alone. He's never worried. He's never anxious because he is in this community, and he brings you into relationship with the Father and with the Spirit and with himself. Another way to say this is, Jesus promises peace to everyone who's in a covenant relationship with him. Covenant relationship. A covenant is a relationship between two parties who are joined together by promises. And God willingly enters into this kind of relationship with people where he makes promises. And he guarantees them with an oath. He has made promises to you. He brings you into relationship with himself. The, the language of Jesus in John 14 is covenant language. You see it all over the place, but look at verses 15 and 16. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He repeats the same idea in verse 21, verse 23, this language of covenant. If you love me, you'll be loved by my Father. We'll be with you. We will keep our side. And how do you enjoy relationship with God in covenant? You love him. That, that echoes the covenantal language of Deuteronomy. It's all over the book of Deuteronomy. Let me just show you one of those passages, Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I'm commanding you today for your good. This is the language of the covenant. So what's our side? How do you experience peace? If peace is found here only in relationship to Jesus, how can you have that? Jesus says in verse 15, if you love me. Verse 21, he who loves me 
Verse 23, if anyone loves me, this is available to everyone who loves Jesus. I think that raises two important questions. One, is God's love then conditional? If you love me, that's a condition. Does that mean God's love is conditional? Or maybe another related question, does that mean that my love for Jesus causes him to love me? If I love him enough, then he will love me back? Is God's love conditional? The way Scripture speaks, yes. The answer is yes. It's common to hear people talk about the unconditional love of God. That's not entirely accurate. Jesus is clear. Not everyone is in fellowship with God. Not everyone receives the Spirit. Not everyone knows the Spirit, verse 17. Not everyone loves Jesus, verse 24. Jesus does not manifest himself to everyone. There are some in the world who do not see him and some who will see him. So Scripture does speak of conditions that define that place where God manifests himself, shows himself, reveals himself. If anyone loves me, my Father will love him. Love is a part of this relationship. We are in a relationship with him, and we have a side in that, to love him. There's a condition there. But does that mean our love for Jesus causes him to love us? or that it somehow earns or deserves his love for us. Absolutely not. And I think that's what most people are trying to get at when they say God's love is unconditional. Really, more accurate way to say that would be his love is unmerited. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. You don't do something that puts God in your debt so that he has to give this to you. God's love is conditional. It's not, un- it is, uh, excuse me, it's conditional. It's not conditional, and it is unmerited. Say that right? His love is conditional, and it's unmerited, undeserved. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. He first loved us. His love is clearly the basis for our love for him. It's because he first loved us, or Jesus says in John 15, 16, you did not choose me. I chose you. I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit that would last. It's not that you first chose me, I chose you. His initiative is the basis of this covenant relationship. And now that we're in relationship, we have a response to God. We love him. That's our side of it. What's his side of it? His side of it is to keep every promise that he has made to you. All of the blessings of covenant relationship. And I want to show you, in the time that we have left, five of those covenant blessings that Jesus promises to everyone who loves him. These are things that if you know them, if you're convinced of them, if you're believing them, this is what produces peace and security in relationship to God himself. First promise Jesus gives is that you will obey. You will obey. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's a promise. And I think in English, that sentence uh, may sound like a test. Like, if you love me, prove it. Prove it by going out and obeying. And so we read that and we might think, is Jesus teaching some kind of works righteousness that I have to keep commandments in order to prove my love and get all of these blessings from him? No, the, the structure of this in the Greek, in Greek, there are several different ways by choosing a different word for if, through the 
the mood and the tense of the verb, that you can construct different kinds of conditional sentences in Greek. The grammar here of this sentence is exactly the same as a passage like Mark 5.28, where it's talking about that woman who was bleeding for 12 years, and she said to herself, if I can touch his garments, I will be made well. If I can just touch his garments, I will be made well. It's like the sentence, if you jump in the pool, you will get wet. If you touch the stove, you will burn your hand. It's that kind of sentence. If you love me, you will obey me. It's a promise. It's not a test. Jesus is not saying, prove it. I'll just watch. You're on probation. Prove it first. He's saying, just love me. And I promise that if you love me, you will obey me. That is the fruit of love for Jesus. Those who love Jesus will obey Jesus. Those who don't love Jesus don't obey Jesus. And that is exactly the new covenant promise that the prophets like Ezekiel foretold. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you. And what happens when God's spirit is in you? I will cause you. This is God. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. My commands aren't just going to be burdensome laws outside of you. I'm going to put them inside of you with, by changing your heart and your desires. I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. Do you, do you pray like that when you're struggling with sin and temptation? Do you just pray, God, bend my heart. Increase these desires by your spirit in me. Cause me to walk in your ways and keep me from sinning. So it is true. If you say you love him, but you don't obey him, then you're self-deceived. But on the other hand, if you try to obey him without loving him, then you're just self-reliant and you, you won't produce genuine obedience to Jesus that way. Love for Jesus produces obedience to Jesus. That's a promise to all who love him. Secondly, you will never be alone. You'll never be alone. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Verse 18. Jesus not only promises that he and the Father will make their home with all who love him, Jesus promises the gift of the Holy Spirit. He calls him another helper to be with you forever. Jesus calls the Spirit a helper. The Greek word is parakletos. Maybe you've heard people refer to the Holy Spirit through that transliteration into English, paraclete. The word literally means one who is called to your side to help you to give you aid, called up to your side to help you at your side. Other translations use the words like comforter. Maybe you've heard the Holy Spirit referred to as the comforter, the counselor, the advocate. The word parakletos has this legal connotation. That, In particular, the one who would be called alongside would be like a, uh, a witness, a character witness, an eyewitness. If you were on trial and you needed somebody to vindicate you who knew you and could testify that it wasn't you, you're not guilty, that's what this advocate is, called alongside as a witness. And the Holy Spirit is a witness to all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did. So Jesus says to his disciples, he has been with you and he's going to be in you. He's been with you because he's with me and I'm with you this whole time, but he's going to be in you and he's going to keep doing what he's been doing. He's going to testify to me. He's going to vindicate me. He's going to give more witness to me so he calls him the spirit of truth. He is a witness who corroborates Jesus' claims. He says in verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. 
That's what the Holy Spirit is going to do. And I think we can kind of short-circuit this if we jump to that as an application to us, like, well, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He brings Bible memory verses to my mind throughout the day. I think the Holy Spirit does that. But I don't think that's what Jesus is directly talking about here. I think this is, in particular, a promise to these disciples gathered with him there that they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to write down clearly and accurately and authoritatively the record of what Jesus said, that the Spirit of God would lead them into truth, the inspiration of Scripture. This is the basis for our hope that we actually have a record of Jesus' words, which means the Bible you hold in your hands or maybe the Bible that's collecting dust on your shelf, is part of the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to never leave you. When he said, I'm never going to leave you, he had in mind the Holy Spirit who would inspire those first disciples to record his words and his teachings so that you could know Jesus. Which means, if you long for the presence of God, or if you find yourself wondering whether he's present with you at all, whether he cares about what you're going through, if you find those nagging suspicions, God has abandoned me, God is not with me anymore, if you long to see him and to behold his glory with the eyes of your heart, open up his word and read it. Trust it. Obey it no matter how you feel, and God will manifest himself to you because his word is part of his promise he has fulfilled to give the advocate, the witness, the helper, who would testify to all that Jesus is. If you want to know who Jesus is, open up his words. He will never leave you. He will be with you. Third promise, you will be loved forever. Jesus repeats this twice. Verse 21, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. those good words? To be loved by God. If anyone loves me, my Father will love him. What does it mean to be loved by God? I, mean, I, th- I think that's at the root of so much of our yeah, the functional orphan mentality that we can live with. Does God actually love me? Does he even like me? I think a lot of our troubled emotions and tangled thoughts stem from the conviction I'm unloved, I'm uncared for, I'm unseen. And this promise just uproots all of those unbelieving thoughts. To be loved by God means, as John later writes, 1 John 4, 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It means God the Father was willing to give his own son to be the wrath-absorbing, sin-atoning sacrifice for your sin. That's incredible. And as if that wasn't enough on top of that, he, he doesn't just pardon you like a judge forgiving the criminal in the courtroom. He adopts you into his family. He's a father and you're his son or his daughter, John writes in 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the father has given to us? That we should be called children of God and so we are. We're children. How much does that truth, the adoptive love of God, function in your mind on a day-to-day basis? You're going through everyday life, everyday situations, feeling frustrations and unpleasant emotions, all that stuff. How, how much does that function in your mind? God loves me. God adopted me. 
He gave his son for me. He pardoned all my sin, and now he just lavishes his delight and pleasure in me. He treats me like a child because that's what I am. You will be loved. For you will live forever. Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. This departure Jesus is talking about refers to his, his death and then to his ascension. But Jesus assures them, though they're about to go through this horrifying, these horrifying hours when he is beaten and crucified and buried, he assures them ahead of time, I'm going to live. And because I live, you live. You will share in my very life. Again, I think at the root of a lot of our fear and anxiety is this belief the future is bleak. I was looking at these stats about anxiety in America. 40 million Americans. Main worries for Americans. Health, safety, and job financial security. Health and safety are at the top of that list. Majority of Americans say they're more anxious this year than they were last year. I think that just keeps increasing. How do we measure that? Just keep worrying about my future and my health and my safety and my security. And Jesus says, I live. I conquered the grave. I dealt with all of your sin. And because I live, you also will live. Which means that when you're united to this grave-conquering Jesus in covenant fellowship. There, there's no threat, there's no danger, there's no illness, there's no calamity, there's no economic recession, there's nothing that can threaten the joy and peace you have in him. And John, throughout his gospel, emphasizes what we call inaugurated eschatology. Last things that have already started, they're already and not yet fully completed, we already share in this resurrection life with Jesus, you will live forever. And finally, you will have joy. You will. Jesus says in verse 28, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. The remedy to all of our anxieties and fears and worries is to see things from God's perspective. Jesus' departure was the event that, that triggered this fear and panic for the disciples. That, that was their situation, and their fear was this response to that reality. Jesus is leaving. And so the, they start thinking and believing things like, now we're all alone. All of our hopes for this Messiah King, they're just ruined. The future's bleak and miserable. We're, we're vulnerable to all kinds of dangers and threats now. I mean, if they take down him, what are they going to do to us? And Jesus says that the way to actually experience joy and peace instead of anxiety is not necessarily through a change in your circumstances, but through a change in your worship. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. The grammar here is different than verse 15. This is not a, the, the promise kind. This is more of the implication, if, if you loved me, but you don't right now. You don't yet get it. You don't yet love me. But if you did, it would produce joy in you. So, so there's a promise. When you love me, it will produce joy. Their lack of joy is evidence of their lack of love for Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say this to condemn them or heap scorn on them. In fact, in verse 29, the next verse, he's clear. He's saying this so that they will believe. That's what he wants for them. That's what he's aiming at producing in them. But he's telling them there's truth 
to know and believe. There's a perspective to see things from that would change things for you. And in particular, that truth is that Jesus is going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. What does that mean, the Father is greater than I? It doesn't mean the Father is a greater God than I am. That'd be the wrong way to read this. That would not fit at all in the Gospel of John, which is clear that Jesus was in the beginning with God and he was God. It's not what Jesus is saying, that there's some hierarchy within God and God the Father is the greater God and Jesus is the lesser God. He's giving them the grounds that would produce joy. What is it about his return to the Father that would produce joy? I think it's a description, what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm going to the Father and the Father is greater than I, so rejoice. I think he's describing where he's going. Rejoice that I'm going to the Father and in the Father, with the Father, my glory is manifested. That, that's where I was forever in great glory. Jesus prays this way in John 17, 5, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's not something he didn't have and now he's going to get. It's something he always had and he gave up. And in the flesh, in the incarnation, his glory is veiled, but he's returning to the Father. And when he returns to the Father, so he's telling the disciples, he's about to go through this incredible humiliation. being beaten and and killed. But he's going to be exalted. Exalted in glory. And if you love him, that would cause joy because you'd see what God is up to in all of this is exalting his own glory for our joy. That's why you should rejoice. And, And that's the very perspective we need in everyday life. We tend to look at things from our own side, how this makes us feel. I wish things went this way instead of that way. If only my life was like this, it would be better and I would be happier. And Jesus is saying, if you love me, you love my glory, and you know I'm in glory, ruling and reigning from there. I found myself preaching this to myself this last week, different circumstances that I was facing. Jesus, you are with the Father. You have returned to glory. You are no longer humiliated and beaten down. You are reigning from the right hand of the Father, and you've brought me into relationship with you, and you're working for your glory in the circumstances I'm facing, that causes me joy. My circumstances don't even have to change. I just need to see and love you in your glory more. So you will rejoice. Your joy will be full when you love Jesus. How do you get peace? Jesus says, John 14, 1, the very beginning of this chapter, same thing. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So there it is. Believe in Jesus. Trust Jesus. Love Jesus. That's where peace is found. But what about when you fail? We all waver in our faith, right? Our love for Jesus falters. We stumble in unbelief. We we find that we can for a while, linger, wallow in lies. We do choose idols over Jesus from time to time. What assurance do you have that you will continue to enjoy this access to Jesus and his peace and all of these other blessings, given the fact that our own love for him is so fickle? Jesus guarantees true peace, not as the world gives do I give, 
He guarantees true peace because he's the mediator of this covenant. It's a new covenant. It's a better covenant. In verses 30 and 31, listen to his words. Right before he says, rise, let us go. The ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. That is the grounds. That's the basis. That's the foundation for our hope in every one of these covenant promises God makes to us. Jesus perfectly loved the Father. Jesus always obeyed the Father. Jesus lived a righteous life, a sinless life. Therefore, he can say, the devil has no claim, no charge. He can bring every accusation accusation against me, not a single one of them will stick because they're not true. Sinless, blameless. Therefore, he is uniquely qualified to be the sin-atoning sacrifice for you and for me. And he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. Jesus innocently, willingly laid down his life out of love for the Father, obedience to the Father, to fulfill the covenant he had with the Father to accomplish redemption for his people. Jesus did that perfectly in order to make peace between you and God and to secure your peace forever. So when you're aware of your failure, your failure to love Jesus, your failure to obey Jesus, you're looking at your life thinking, is there enough obedience in my life to prove that I even love Jesus? This is your confidence. This is your security. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father. He died as a sinless substitute for you so that God could forgive all of your sin and God could be righteous and just in making and keeping every one of these promises to you. So where do you see in your own attitudes, your own heart, your own actions, this functional belief that you're alone, you're unprotected, you're vulnerable, Is it fighting for scraps? Is it returning to the pit of sin? Is it lingering in this anxiety that just won't leave? What what would happen if you just consciously look to Jesus, trust in Jesus for relationship with him? Not not just peace is the fruit that comes from that, but the, the goal is just to know him, to know him and trust him and love him and to believe, not just to have heard these things once, but to know them in our daily lives. I'm never alone. I'm always loved. I live because he lives. He lives in me. And my joy is secured in him. Trust Jesus and let not your hearts be troubled. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look to you. We have no other source of comfort, no other source of security that actually lasts. Nothing else. We we find fleeting comforts and pleasures and protections and we do a decent job of building these shelters for ourselves and in the end, nothing else can secure us but you. Thank you that you 
give us yourself so generously. You gave yourself, literally, because you loved the Father, because you obeyed the Father in everything. We know it now. We know it because you went to the cross for us. We know that you love the Father perfectly, and we trust you. We look to you, and in looking to you, we pray that you would secure our hearts, that we would know this peace that surpasses understanding. You are the God of peace. Make your home in us as you promised to do. Abide in us. Manifest yourself to us as we love you and worship you and trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.